Eyes Open, a Melbourne Design Week exhibit highlights gendered violence in city design. There is an underbelly to all of our cities in which we live that makes it challenging for women, girls and gender diverse people to actually traverse the city, to feel safe in the place that they live in. Vroom vroom, what the federal government's electric vehicle strategy means for car buyers. Australia's a long way behind America, we're an even further way behind Europe in terms of fuel efficiency standards. So this is a massive change for us. And plot twist, solidarity in Melbourne for the embattled queer community on an international day of action. It's a day to stand against LGBTQA plus discrimination. Just to be visible um, and show allyship and encourage others to do the same. Hear all the details from Sin Media's news team later this hour. Good afternoon. You're listening to On The Beat, wrapping this week's biggest stories. I'm Sam. And I'm Mia, broadcasting from Sin's Melbourne studios based in the Eastern Kulin Nation. We'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people whose land we're reporting from today. Womanjika, welcome to the program and thanks for your company. We've got lots of news to come. An exhibit opening in Melbourne tomorrow following a Venice debut yesterday is putting a spotlight on city safety. Jean Borden is a researcher with Consenting Cities, organisers XYX Lab and says urban design can contribute to gendered violence. He spoke with Liz Folders about how choices made about public spaces can impact women and queer people. So Consenting Cities uh, largely consists of um, a graphic wall uh, essentially made up of patterns and each of these patterns represents a different typology of the city. So... You know, square represents public space, the star represents spaces after dark, circles represent public transport and so on. And what it does is kind of creates this kind of pattern of what a city is like underneath the, the, the representation of the city. So Melbourne and Venice, they're beautiful cities that have you know, a, a real attraction to tourists, a real attraction for the people who live there. But nonetheless, there is an underbelly to all of our cities in which we live that makes it challenging for women, girls and gender diverse people to actually traverse the city, to feel safe in the places that they live in. And we want to engage people and help them reveal that data. So utilising their phone, we have augmented reality embedded within the work and utilising their phone, people can actually reveal the data and see... I guess what the data represents. So, for example, you know, 64.4% of LGBTIQ students have been sexually harassed at school. That's a, you know, from K to 12, from primary to high school. That's a huge amount of people that, um, because of their identity, have been harassed in some way. So, we need to make people aware of that particular type of data and potentially one, see themselves within it, or two, get them to respond. How might they respond to that particular challenge? How does that translate into the work that you're doing with XYX Lab? So XYX Lab has existed for around six years, and over that time we've gathered data from globally, from around the world, but also from Australia, through our own research and gathering together the data from like a whole bunch of other researchers. But what's important for us is to try and make that data visible. Frequently, data pertaining to gendered violence and gendered experiences of unsafety in the city are concealed within reports like government reports or potentially Mm. academic journals, but they never really get a public outing where people 
on the street can actually see it and understand that I guess the depth of the challenge and this is a challenge that has lasted for a really long time it's centuries old and you know, I, we don't pretend that what we're doing will actually solve it in a, in a heartbeat, but what we want to do is to make people alert and aware of the challenges that you know, a, a portion of our city faces. People who don't feel safe in their own city is a, an uncomfortable statistic to sit with, yeah. particularly for those who actually do feel comfortable. And we want to make people realise that you know, through creative means and through kind of public dissemination, that this data is real, but it's also valuable. We can respond to it in, by you know, getting people to think about how they might respond to that data. Is mm. there you know, policy makers or people that we can lobby to actually invest in the data and push for change for uh, to get you know, the, the problems that are apparent in our cities to actually start to be addressed. And as I said, it won't be addressed immediately, but at least if we can push forward the idea that these are challenges that need to be addressed, mm. then that's something that we should be doing. And if we, like just in terms of the, you know, what's been in the news at the moment, I do the like the um, drag story time in our public libraries, our suburban public libraries just being shut down because people are wrongly concerned about the, the challenge that, you know, that somehow that particular process is grooming our children. It's ridiculous, it's silly and wrong, but you know, councils are closing it down because of the fear of the safety for the people involved in that particular um, you know, process. Like these are things that are happening under our noses all the time and yeah. we need to be aware of it. And that's what the exhibition is about, is to kind of make public all of that data. I see. So I, you speak a lot about, you know, data. So how do you guys make this data engaging? How does it, like, translate mm -hmm. to the normal person? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question because when you talk about data, you know, occasionally people's eyes roll into the back of their head and go, ugh. <laughs> so not interesting, but it is. It's <laughs> and we're kind of confronted with increasing amounts of data. Data's really easy to collate and collect, and there's an overwhelming amount of data out there. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is draw out the most kind of powerful piece of data and get people to, as I said before, potentially they see themselves represented in it. If you're an, um, a student in a high school who represents as non-binary or LGBTIQ, then you know that you're not alone in that experience. There's 64.4 other people who have experienced some sort of harassment because of that. And there's somehow, there's, I know it, like the number is extraordinary and it's awful and it's wrong, but yeah. it's also powerful to know that you're a part of a larger community of people who can actually be supported, be represented and be fought for. And that's, I think, the difference between just representing data in like a bar chart or a you know, Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. No one's going to with that data. But no, if we can make it publicly accessible and creatively interesting and um, confronting and challenging at the same time, then I think it has much more impact. You mentioned the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. How would you say that they're particularly at risks 
risk in cities? Uh, we and we know that um, there's an extraordinary number of uh, of data, disturbing data <clears throat> around you know the, the amount of homelessness, for example, suicide ideation, um, the you know, and like drug abuse challenges. All of those sorts of things are disproportionately represented in LGBTIQ communities alongside just the general sexual harassment that occurs at schools, at bars, at clubs, and workplaces. These are not new statistics to us. And I think that the, the important thing, like there's never been a more important time to champion the, um, <clears throat> the I guess, the backing of the LGBTIQ community because they're confronting globally such a backlash of kind of, I guess, super right-wing kind of political uh, trauma that so shouldn't be a part of a 21st century, 2023 dialogue. But then there's these highlights as well, like the fact that we have the Pride Centre proudly centred in Fitzroy Street and St Kilda with the extraordinarily powerful LGBTIQ groups embedded within it is this focal point, this touchstone of change. But I think, yes, there's, you know, alongside the, the challenging data, there's also these positive stories that we need to realise are a result of acknowledging that those challenges existed and there needs to be a response to it. And the Pride Centre is a perfect example of that. You know, if you can... <clears throat> I'm a, uh, you know, someone who grew up in the 1970s and 80s and I could never imagine that in those those years that there would ever be a, you know, a Pride Centre. an extraordinary building but that stands for so much more than just bricks and mortar. This is a you know, powerhouse of the... LGBTIQ community and the reason it's come about is because there's been a response to data and a need for recognising that change had to occur. You know, the, the city is more than a construction of new towers and spaces for people to live and work. They're also spaces that need to be accessible and safe for everyone and not just those who naturally feel safe in urban environments. So I think for us Every project we do is pushing that message further and demonstrating the data and the facts and the research that indicates that these things need to be addressed. That was researcher Jean Borden. Catch the full interview on the Loud and Queer Talks podcast. The state government has awarded a new contract to a firm set to overhaul the Mikey public transport ticketing system. Mikey has copped criticism over technical faults and cost overruns since its implementation 15 years ago. But Transport Minister Ben Carroll says the new agreement with Conduit will modernise the system. For the past 16 years, we have had a card-based ticketing system under Mikey. We will now reach the 21st century. They are a world-class company, world's best practice, mobility as a service. They're into smart payments, smart ticketing. The plan changes will bring Melbourne into line with other Australian capital cities, including Sydney, Brisbane and Adelaide. Brady Golding reports. The introduction of Mikey was plagued by delays and cost overruns and technical faults. The Public Transport Minister, Ben Carroll, said that Conduit was going to upgrade Mikey so that all passengers could travel using just a bank card or a smartphone with a digital wallet. 
rather than needing to buy a Mikey card and load it with funds, which people have said is a really big issue on trams and buses. It's been possible to um, pay with a card or a phone in London since 2012 and Sydney since 2018. So people are saying, like, this is going to bring us into the 21st century. So Public Transport Users Association spokesman Daniel Bowen said enabling bank card and smartphone payments was long overdue and would remove a major obstacle to using Victoria's train, tram and bus network. That was Bridie Golding for Represent, airing 5pm Tuesdays on SIN. International students will face higher visa fees and stricter work requirements as part of changes in the federal budget. A 48-hour per fortnight limit on working hours will come into effect from July for students in all industries except aged care. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says the changes will strengthen the integrity of the migration system. A big focus of our efforts is going to be how we manage international students in the migration system. We want to ensure that high-performing students with the skills we need are given a proper chance to stay in Australia. We propose creating faster, simpler pathways for the international students who have special skills and capabilities that we need. But we also need to make sure that our international student system has integrity. So working with my colleagues, Ministers Brendan O'Connor and Jason Clare, we are looking at tightening the requirements for international students studying in Australia to ensure that students who are here are actually here to study. The changes come after a formal review into Australia's migration system. Tess McCracken reports. Now, this will mean that students will be required required to attend face-to-face classes on campus to meet the requirements of their student visa. This will also mean that they're limited to working just 48 hours a fortnight, which is not much at all. Now, it is important to note that um, student visa holders already working in the aged care sector as of May 9th, so it's obviously already passed, can continue to work unrestricted hours in the aged care sector until the 31st of December this year. The concern is that, according to new prop track data, rental vacancy rate is rates are incredibly low. So nationally, they're sitting at 1.47%, and in Melbourne, they're even lower at 1.41%. So students having to come to Melbourne to meet the requirements of their visa are just going to really struggle to find rental properties, and when they do, they're possibly going to struggle to afford it with those capped working hours. So these changes came after a formal review of the Australian of Australia's migration system. So in September of 2022, Australian Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill announced plans for the review and the findings of this review were released back in April. The review opens up with this statement. Australia's migration program is not fit for purpose. The object- objectives of the program are unclear and successive governments and policymakers have responded to challenges through piecemeal reforms which have not addressed fundamental underlying issues. The review also noted um, that, and I quote, too many former students are being allowed to stay long term on, temp- on a temporary basis. So essentially what they're saying there is that some, not all students, but some international students could be using visas as a backdoor um, for working and migrating to Australia. And so that's where these changes have come from. That was Tess McCracken for Panorama, airing 5pm Thursdays on SIN. Tasmania's Liberal state government has been thrown into a minority after two MPs resigned from the party this week. MPs Lara Alexander and John Tuckett cited plans for a $700 million AFL stadium in their resignations. Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockliffe says other MPs are committed to the government's plans and he's confident the Liberals will win the 2025 state election. 
uh, today. I'm extremely uh, disappointed, uh, but I'm getting on with the job. I've always been uh, open, uh, transparent, uh, consultative uh, with our team. Uh, I very much believe in that. I've been let down uh, by uh, colleagues that were elected uh, Liberals in uh, 2021. Tasmania's parliament now has four independent MPs who will hold the balance of power on votes moving forward. Freddie Moffat reports. Laura Alexander, member for Bass, and John Tucker, member for Lyons. They've both left the Liberal Party. Both have quit over not having enough information on the stadium to actually support it. Laura Alexander, as she said when she announced her resignation, she said, for me as an accountant, as an economist, and as a person who has worked in the non-for-profit sector, it's really hard for me to understand this particular investment in the AFL stadium, and I just can't get my head around it. While John Tucker said, I want to ensure that these are the right decisions for the Tasmanian taxpayer, so we're not going to create a nightmare for them going forward with the debt loads. Both have said they don't want to derail the stadium necessarily, uh, but they do want some more information and greater transparency around it. Now, this is not the only thing that they have disagreed with their party on. Lara Alexander specifically has raised concerns about um, the party's stance on the voice to Parliament. The Tasmanian Liberals are for the voice, but she personally doesn't think there is enough transparency and enough information around it to support it. While John Tucker also raised concerns about the Marinus Link deal from last October, the TLDR oversimplification for this is that it's a fancy underpower, underwater power cable that is going to link the electricity grids between Tasmania and Victoria, and he doesn't like it because he thinks it's going to raise the prices for energy for Tasmanians. So both of them have already had some concerns with their party. Both of them have raised these concerns as well, but apparently when they did this, neither of them had really seen any change from this. So the parliamentary makeup uh, at the moment, Liberals, they now have 11 seats, down from 13. Labor hold eight, Greens hold two, and Independents, including John Tucker, and Lara Alexander, who are now independents, is now four seats. So they have to negotiate with these independents, Greens or even Labor to try and pass bills now. That was Freddie Moffat for Represent, available on your preferred podcast platform. Melbourne looked a little more colourful this week as queer advocates marked an annual day of advocacy. But this year, it came amid a fraught time for the local community. Heads up, there's some strong language coming up. Nick Salos Welsh reports. Wednesday saw the 19th annual Ida Hobbit, a day of action against discrimination observed around the world. Queer advocacy organisation Minus 18 were on the ground in Melbourne Central Shopping Centre to raise awareness for the day. Ida Hobbit is an international day against homophobia, biphobia, interphobia and transphobia, which is why I've got the handy acronym Ida Hobbit, but really it's a day to stand against LGBTQA plus discrimination. It was a lower key installation than previous years, which saw the team offering up colourful trinkets to passers-by. Minus 18's here at Melbourne Central today to hand out rainbow ally badges, these rainbow ribbons. Uh, we've got magnets as well, just to be visible um, and show allyship and encourage others to do the same. But while rainbow pins were the order of the day in the CBD, Parliament House tackled a prickly issue just blocks away. Recent weeks have seen drag queen storytime events planned for council libraries face protester backlash. Monash City Council plans for Oakley Library to hold a reading marking Ida Hobbit set the stage for a fiery public meeting last month. The Drag Storytime event is scheduled to be held on 19 May to celebrate the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia by modelling inclusiveness 
kindness and acceptance while promoting a love of reading. Children are never too young to receive such mes messages in a variety of ways. The council scrapped the story time, citing threats to library staff as other councils also axe their events or shift the readings online. Several councils say Victoria Police have advised them it can't ensure the events run safely in light of the threats to staff safety. But this week, State Equality Minister Harriet Shing stepped in, hosting several cancelled performers at Parliament House. Shing is openly queer and says she self-funded the reading, inviting parliamentary staff as children and the Premier to the closed event. But opposition leader John Pesciuto, who just ousted one of his own MPs for comments about transgender women, said he would have liked an invite. I love everybody. This is everybody's house. Everybody should feel welcome in the Victorian Parliament. It was that message of tolerance shared by the performers at Wednesday's Parliament House reading. My shadow is pink. My shadow loves ponies and books and pink toys. Princesses. Me. Fairies. <laughs> Time will tell if acceptance brings the next Ida Hobbit out of the shadows after this year saw more twists and turns than a storybook. Nick Salas Welsh, Sin News, Melbourne. That was Nick Salas Welsh reporting for Loud and Queer, airing 2pm Sundays on Sin. You're listening to On The Beat from Sin's media's news team. Thanks for your company. We've got lots still to come. Keep up with the latest updates by listening live on 90.7 FM or digital radio in Melbourne or Geelong. Or listen anytime online. Just visit sin.org.au or search Sin, that's S-Y-N, on your preferred podcast platform. And let us know what you think about today's stories by messaging at Sin Media on the socials. Stay with us. The federal government's National Electric Vehicle Strategy aims to boost demand for and access to the often pricey cars in Australia. Terry Martin is the editor for second-hand resale platform Car Sales. He spoke to Vince Trees about what this strategy means for Australian consumers. It's to reduce the overall CO2 emissions across a brand. So not all cars will be fuel efficient because we rely heavily on diesel-powered utes and uh, large SUVs, off-roaders and all those things. And they're not going to, going to go away and they're not immediately going to have any lower fuel efficiency necessarily. I have... For the brand, emissions stand like the standard will say the brand needs to have a certain amount of you know CO2 emissions that they can um, that they've got to achieve and they've got to bring those down. So you know, and if they don't, there'll be penalties, but they'll be able to offset. So they'll have some high emitting cars, they'll have lower emitting cars, and they'll need to get more lower emitting cars into the market, which will be better for everybody, so they can offset that. And it's really about encouraging the car makers to bring in more and more fuel-efficient cars, and that includes electric cars, to bring them to market so that it keeps their emissions across the average right down. You know, Australia's not seen as a high-priority market, so we've got only got limited availability of electric cars, we've only got low supplies, but when they see that more and more uptake will be coming because government fleets and big other private fleets will be buying electric cars, all of a sudden we'll be seen as a more attractive, you know, um, market to start sending electric cars, and mm -hmm. that'll help bring the prices down eventually um, and more and more choice to come here. With the new uptake of electric vehicles, do you think Australia's infrastructure for the demand of a new market of electric vehicle, do you think we have the infrastructure for that yet? Or is that something that, that will, you know, come needs to come 
into the future. Yep, it's definitely something that's um, a work in progress. We've got a real lack of infrastructure at the moment. Now, and when we talk about infrastructure, we, we also talk about not only like the public recharging infrastructure, such as placement of the service stations. You've, when you're on the road, you've got to be able to have places where you can recharge um, when you're on the road. But also being able to charge at home. So having something that's not just plugging into your wall socket, but actually having something that's a little better, that's a little faster, that's just, there's all sorts of options and things that need to be sorted out going further down the track in terms of home and public recharging that really needs to happen before we reach reach a critical mass. I live several hundred kilometres away from a major capital city, so, you know, I know that range anxiety is, is a real thing. You've really got to have the charging infrastructure. We've got to have a lot more of it, and those those are on the agenda, but we really do have to see that happen. There are a lot of people at the moment who are really looking to buy EVs, but they're you know they're, they're kind of not in the market now they're, because they're at least sixty thousand dollars. That prices a lot of people out of the market, but. With a, and, and even though there's a $3,000 rebate, for example, in Victoria and some other states, they're all still priced around that mark. So car sales actually has done some research where people looking to spend between thirty dollars and $60,000, they're the ones who are really, really keen and much more likely to consider buying an electric car than people that have got more money in their pocket and looking to spend more than $60,000 on a car, for example. Comparatively to Europe or, say, America, where they already have efficiency standards, how does Australia stack up against that? Australia's a long way behind America. We're an even further way behind Europe in terms of fuel efficiency standards. We haven't had mandatory standards, and that's the key difference. In Europe, they've had mandatory standards for a decade. So we're essentially a decade behind countries such as the EU in terms of mandating efficiency of cars and that's really prompted a lot of the technology, a lot of the advancements and improvements in Europe and we're seeing some of those technologies as a natural result come to Australia but we haven't had those standards here. Mandatory fuel efficiency standards are great. We haven't had them in Australia before. So this is a massive change for us. As a result, we've, we've been 10 years behind what's been happening overseas in Europe and America's been moving in that way and particularly certain uh, states in America such as California, they've been miles ahead of us. So that's now changing. That's a good thing for everybody because we're going to see a lot more fuel efficient cars come to Australia and it's it's a driver for change. We're still a nation that loves utes and we love big transport. We love um, big big off road four by fours and SUVs. So that's not going to change. So and that's been one of the reasons why we've had uh, such a slow take up, and that's why we've been so so behind. Because well, as the argument is, and it's and it's hard not to see. Just exactly what we what we like as a nation in terms of what our preferences are for our our vehicles. So the Utes are the biggest selling cars in Australia. The Ford Ranger and the Toyota Hilux. We sell more of them than anything else. So that's not going to change anytime soon with these new fuel efficiency standards. It's still going to be well past 2030, and before any real change occurs, we should see more fuel efficient 
engines come into these, but will we see a wholesale change to electric utes or or four by fours? Only it'll be it'll be small steps, and it's going to take a pretty long time. Electrification is 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 here. Hybrids are incredibly popular. Australians have shown that you know that they love they love hybrid cars. So if we can get hold of those, they make a lot more sense to Australians because because of the range anxiety being an absolute real thing with electric cars. But we'll see. EVs improve in terms of um, in terms of range. There's some great reasons why four by fours will go EV eventually down the track. There's a lot of scepticism too from died in the wall four by four enthusiasts, but all these things will change. It's it's an unstoppable force. If, if you ask me, it's it's a bit like a like a lava flow. We're not going to be inundated tomorrow, but we really can't stop the progress. We can't stop the surge. Humans are clever, so we're really uh, embracing the change as Australians, you know, slowly, and it'll take a long time. But these challenges that we're presented with at the moment, these all these will be sorted out. I've got no no doubt that uh, this is a, a change that's for the better, that it, that's coming, but it'll be done carefully, and there'll be setbacks along the way. But it's definitely a, a change for good. That was car sales editor Terry Martin. Catch the full interview on the Panorama podcast. Gambling ads have come under the microscope as politicians from both major federal parties took aim at the industry. This week, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese branded the ads annoying and said a review into online gambling is underway. His comments came after opposition leader Peter Dutton called for more regulations in his budget reply speech last Thursday. If the internet influences our children, so does content on our television screens. In our country, footy time is family time. But the bombardment of betting ads takes the joy out of televised sports. Worse, they're changing the culture of our country in a bad way and normalising gambling at a young age. Many Australian families have had enough. And that's why tonight I announced that a coalition government will move to ban sports betting advertising during the broadcasting of games. Ads would be banned for an hour each side of a sporting game. I encourage the Prime Minister to work with us on this initiative to get it implemented now. Current restrictions on gambling ads during televised sports limit how early and how often they can be shown. Lachlan Patrick reports. Let's set the scene here. So gambling, it has a huge impact on Australians. 40% of Australians gamble weekly and of those 46%, that's nearly half, are at risk of harm. It also skews younger. So the audience composition of a major betting company 12% could be sinlessness, they're under 25. But then if you add in the next 10 years, under 35, 38% of online gamblers are under 35, at least online gamblers of this one major betting company. So that is, yeah, four in in 10 of online gamblers are under 35. So Peter Dutton has proposed um, taking a much harder line on gambling advertising during during sporting events on TV. Right now, the current restrictions are um, no gambling ads between five minutes before the kickoff of a game until 8:30 p.m. After 8:30, kids have gone to bed; they can start to appear in ad breaks. Uh, but later this year, Labor does intend to take that further. They're going to introduce legislation to ban credit cards for online gambling. They're also going to hear back from an online gambling inquiry that launched last September. So, Peter Dutton. He's trying to wedge elbow on this issue by going, oh, we're going to take a really hard line on online gambling. The Prime Minister can't say 
that that's a bad idea, but he also can't say that the Liberals have had a good idea. So what does he do? He's gone. Yeah, I can't make it. I can't make a call here. But oh, gambling ads—they're pretty annoying, right? Final thought is: Is this going to work if they were to take gambling ads off TV? No, they can just advertise online. Ko, kind of the leading online sports streaming company. They've got 1.3 million subscribers. That's a lot of people to sell ads to. And then ads, of course, are also going to run on those highlights videos on social media platforms, YouTube as well. So there would need to be a much larger、um, action, if any action, what's going to be taken. That was Lachlan Patrick for Represent on the socials at Sin Represent. Apple has expanded its satellite emergency calling feature to Australia and New Zealand this week. The feature is only available to users of the technology company's newest devices and will cost money after a two-year trial period. Satellite modelling manager Ashley Williams says satellites can connect users with emergency services even when people are out of range of phone towers. Smartphones connect to cell towers that are a few miles away. Over the last several decades, carriers have built more and more cell towers to improve the strength and speed of their network service. However, there are some places, like winding back roads and mountain ridges, that cell towers don't reach. Connectivity in these areas can be provided by communication satellites. Unlike stationary cell towers, communication satellites are hundreds of miles above the Earth and flying at over 15,000 miles per hour. To connect to these satellites, you need to be outside with a clear view of the sky. And the bandwidth is so limited that even sending a text message is a technical challenge. This technology still has a way to go, with users reporting unreliability in rugged terrain areas. Ruby Littler reports. This initiative was trialled in the US and the UK last year to much success, and has now been brought to Australian and New Zealand shores. The feature uses satellite emergency SOS technology, which orbit more than a thousand kilometres from Earth. So, an estimated 80% of triple zero calls in Australia are made via mobile phones. Upon calling triple zero via the satellite, people will be able to respond to prompts and then respond to those related to the situation. It's kind of like a regular triple zero call, but the difference is that this message will go through a relay centre staffed by Apple employees, which are trained in emergency services, who will then dispatch on to the relevant emergency services. It's different from the way that it's normally done, which、mm. just goes will then go、place. straight to the particular provider that's needed. Because you call triple zero, and it's like, do you need ambulance services, police services? Like, what's your capabilities that you、mm. need? But to go through this other Apple medium, you know, it's just like it's kind of like a middleman. So the necessity is interesting for sure. That could potentially save lives, and it has saved lives in the UK. It saved twelve <laughs> lives last year. So I wonder if this will cause. You know, a mass migration over to iPhone technology. Not that they're not already the major players in the game.、Mm. So it'll be interesting to see the stats that are bound to come out over the next, you know, decade or so. That was Ruby Littler for Panorama on the socials at Panorama Sin. Google has unveiled a new language model using machine learning alongside other hardware at its annual flagship showcase. The technology firm intends to build its Palm 2 model into 25 of its upcoming products and features. Google talked up the tech at the I/O conference this week. Palm 2 builds on our found, fundamental research and our latest infrastructure. It's highly capable at a wide range of tasks. Palm 2 models are stronger in logic and reasoning, thanks to broad training on scientific and mathematical topics. It's also trained on multilingual text spanning over 100 languages, so it understands and generates nuanced results. Combined with powerful coding capabilities, 
Palm 2 can also help developers collaborating around the world. Google is continuing to develop the technology, wanting systems built on the Palm 2 can produce what it calls toxic language harms. Taylor Oates reports. Google has finally released in the last few weeks their answer to AI chat GPT programming. And let me tell you a little bit about it. So it's called Palm 2. It's the next generation language model that the company says performs outperforms other leading systems on some tasks. But this is following Jeffrey Hinton, which Sura talked about a few weeks ago, leaving the company to talk freely about AI. He hasn't come out and spoken specifically about the Google AI product as of yet, but people are like holding their breath waiting for his response. In its preliminary research, the company warned that systems built on Palm 2 continue to produce toxic language harms, with some language issuing toxic responses to the queries about black people in almost a fifth of all texts. That was Taylor Oates for Panorama, airing 5pm Thursdays on SIN. Research published this week may settle a long-standing debate about which sea creature is the world's oldest animal. The University of California, Berkeley and University of Vienna study analyse animals' chromosomal structures to reach its conclusion. Study co-author Daniel Rockshaw has been studying evolution for decades and talked about what drives his research in 2003. What was going on eight or nine hundred million years ago that suddenly allowed animals to emerge and then uh, develop all of the different specialisations that allowed them basically to take over uh, both, both the water and the land. By looking at these different evolutionary trees, we can start to figure out what our ancestors must, what our ancestors must have been like. And now we understood, understand how we got from where they were to where we are today. And so one of the interesting things you can do by thinking about life in this way is try to understand where certain characteristics appeared. The first multicellular animals emerged over 700 million years ago. Sura Mishra reports. At a certain point in time, uh, a single cell creature became multicellular creatures. And those multicellular creatures kept evolving, evolving, evolving until we branched off into animals and uh, what is humans. So for the longest time, there has been a debate in the scientific community uh, considering the origins of animals. At a certain point in our history, animal the animal kingdom divided into two. It branched into two different parts and every single animal that we know of today uh, is somewhere down the line falls into these two branches and one of those uh, branches we don't know what was the origin point we don't know what was the animal that uh, divided the two branches we have we don't have evidence of that because finding evidence of uh, it's just really hard it's really really hard Um, but Hypothesis has always been that one of these branches, the ancestor was either sponge or a comb jelly. So comb jelly is, as I said, it's an aquatic creature. It belongs to the phylum Cetinophora. And it's one of those creatures like jellyfish, which uses cilia to move around in water. A study published quite recently in the journal Nature by Darren Schultz and uh, at the University of Vienna suggests mm. that comb jelly m- might have been the ancestor out of which the second branch of animal um, kingdom 
emerge from and for the longest time we thought it was sponge right so mm. you guys know you have cells and cells are pretty simple um simple organisms right sponge are also very um simple organisms they don't have any nerves they don't have any muscles they absorb water they take in the food that's in the water and they just filter it out seems pretty simple right but evidence suggests otherwise that was sura mishra for panorama available on your preferred podcast platform this has been on the beat from sin's media news team thanks for your company i'm sam and i'm mia to keep up with the latest news updates follow at sin media on the socials that's at s-y-n-m-e-d-i-a if you missed anything visit sin.org.au to catch up or search s-y-n on your preferred podcast platform and don't forget to tune in next time by listening live on 90.7 fm or digital radio in melbourne or geelong